Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This podcast exists because of the paid members at decodingtv.com. Become a paid member, get ad-free episodes and early access to episodes. We really appreciate everyone at decodingtv.com who makes this podcast possible. What do you do when you're lonely? I watch Netflix. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Decoding TV, a podcast about television. I'm David Chen, and joining me today is Patrick Klepek. As usual, Patrick, how are you doing today, man? You know, I'm just trying to be the last person who hasn't seen Squid Game. I'm the one who got you. How far <laughs> can I stretch that out? Right up to season two, uh, and uh, we'll see. We'll see how far I can go. Indeed. Well, you can find more episodes of this podcast at podcast.decodingtv.com. Email us. At decodingtv at gmail.com and find us across all platforms at decoding TV. We're posting video versions of our reviews at youtube.com slash decoding TV. Appreciate all the folks who have joined us on there. And we'll be posting clips on Instagram and TikTok as well. So be sure to follow decoding TV across all platforms. Today on the podcast, so much to discuss. We got a little bit of Squid Game news for you. We got a little bit of uh, the Daily Show news for you to discuss. John Stewart returning to that show. And then we are going to be uh, reviewing the first couple episodes of Masters of the Air on Apple TV+, Plus, the first couple episodes of Expats on Prime Video, and then concluding, as usual, by continuing our coverage of True Detective Night Country. So lots to get into. Patrick Klepek, let's start by talking about Squid Game Season 2. Squid Game Season 2 news broke this week that uh, Squid Game Season 2 will debut in 2024. Uh, the first season, of course, debuted in September of 2021. I am uh, awash with emotions about this. Uh, first of all, uh, I'm excited. Second of all, trepidatious. <laughs> you know, third, <laughs> thirdly, apprehensive and fearful. I mean... Uh, I have seen Squid Game Season 1. I have also seen the Squid Game reality show uh, on which, you know, which is based off of Squid Game Season 1. You have seen neither of those things. Is that correct? Do you want to know what my widest exposure to Squid Games is? Where I learned the most about... Once I got distanced from sort of the cultural moment and I sort of missed it. Like, this yeah. is what happened. Like, Squid Games exploded was so popular everyone's talking about it i was like oh i gotta i gotta watch that yeah. and then you get enough distance from something you're like i i missed it now nobody's talking about right. it and i just never quite got back around to it but then i looped back to seeing squid game things and being reminded of the cultural moments when my daughter my oldest who's seven got into roblox and so many of the games that are in there are built around squid game competition mm. sequences. Like I never saw red light, green light in the show, but I watched mm. my daughter play a version of red light, green light with a giant bunny that was attacking her in wow. Roblox. And so uh, that was, that was, that. It, it speaks to how deep the influence of that show went, which right. is 
you know, my child seven at the time that she like experienced that in Roblox was she was probably six, five. Uh, she doesn't know what Squid Games is. And yet the resonance of that show was so deep that it managed to like infiltrate into this like, you know, youth centric gaming platform and then influence the kinds of games they were playing stripped of their thematic, like emotional context. And then purely just about game mechanics, which is just a funny way to watch a piece of culture squirm its way through the the different uh, things that we experience. Yeah, I'm really curious, Patrick Klepek, as somebody who has not seen Squid Game, what is your perception of what the show is? Uh, 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 is I don't know if it's capitalism bad, rich people bad, mm-hmm. um, yep, all the above. rich people exploiting poor people in in games. Um, lots of sadness, lots of sadness. We're very mm-hmm. sad. Um, and lots of people are dying. Um, yeah. uh, I think it'd be fascinating to like, cause I do intend to catch up ahead of season two. I expect that we'll probably be covering yeah. season two later this year. Um, I think it'll be interesting to revisit or, or rather visit a show like that divorced from the phenomenon in the lead up to right. a lot of anticipation. My understanding is that the, the first season, you know, there's a quote creator, but like, are they a singular writer across the show? Like what yeah, is their, yeah. okay. And yeah, my they, understanding is they're essentially coming back for, for season two, right? Uh, yeah. They're returning to direct and executive produce this season. I don't know if they're, uh, it's not a hundred percent clear to me if they're going to write all the episodes. I, I don't, I, I'm, if I had to guess, I would say no, it seemed like it was a Herculean effort to write and direct like all the episodes of the first season and it's like a singular vision you know uh and what 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 we don't want is a crew detective situation i was just gonna say i feel like there are some interesting echoes of that series and a singular creative voice and what it means to then be rushed into production creation of of a second season this might be one of those cases where the the strikes and things of that nature giving a creative room to breathe, even if they weren't writing over the strike is would maybe be, I don't know, maybe give you some hope that the the second season would have a chance to be at the very least interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm worried because if you read all the interviews with the creator of the show, uh, it, it feels like it took so long to make the show. It was like such a hard won process of making the show. Um, uh, Huang Dong Hyuk, I believe, is the name of the uh, creator of Squid Game, and uh, there is this line that uh, this like maxim about creative work, um, like when if you're a, a musician, you know, when you make your first album, uh, it in inside that first album is everything you have learned in your life until that point, <laughs> and then on your second album is everything you learned between the first album and the second album. <laughs> um, the sophomore slump. I mean, they they call like it has a it has a term for for a reason. And does does that first season leave you in a place where, wow, I can't wait to see where this goes next, or does this did did does this feel as though it's inevitable due to the sheer popularity and virality of of the material. Yeah. I mean, so squid game was like one of the most popular shows ever in Mm -hmm. Netflix history and was a worldwide phenomenon. And it was helped by a number of things, including the pandemic, which like made it so that lots of people were stuck indoors. Um, But I love that show. I think it was an incredible show. The idea is that uh, poor people are competing again in games in which uh, many of them die. Uh, Sometimes they are like doing things that will result in each other's death. Uh, in order to win a massive 
cash prize. And all this is being done for the entertainment of rich people. That's kind of what the, the uh, show is. And uh, what was amazing about the show was, first of all, like the cast was incredible. You, there's all the, the, you know, it's hard to have hundreds of contestants and actually care about a significant portion of them. Uh, and the protagonist is really like an incredible actor. He's like a well-known actor in, in South Korea, but mm-hmm. uh, did a great job anchoring the show. Uh, and the games were so inventive and visually iconic and interesting. And it was like nothing we'd ever seen before with that scale. You know, I've seen a lot of South Korean horror movies and people getting creatively murdered. Like that's (laughs) a thing that I've seen a bunch, but what, what is rare is to see it of the scale of squid game where you have hundreds of participants or dozens of participants uh, at a time and just, yeah, the, they're playing these, like, simple games, and then at the end of them, a bunch of people die, right? Like, that's kind of what the hook is. And when you're watching the show, there's this... Um, it honestly reminded me of Seven, the uh, David Fincher movie, where you're just... You, there's this perverse desire to see what the next game is, to see, like, how it works and how people are going to die in it. Um, and so I mean, like, a lot. there's a lot of formulaic sort of right. uh, horrors, uh, like, uh, and horror-adjacent material and it's, and it's interesting you point out you know the movie will or a show we'll talk about later masters of the air an ensemble piece uh it is not easy to execute ensemble pieces and have memorable characters Absolutely. and have through lines especially in a in a show like squid game where you already kind of have a hook right like you've got the games you've got the iconography of the games for a lot of material that can be enough and it's just here's the character fodder that gets us through the next bit and it seems part of what elevated Squid Game was that it had memorable characters and a story to pair with this really memorable setups. And that is just a very rare thing to have. Usually you you can have one or the other. It's rare to have both. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Uh, I mean, you were just talking in the pre-show, I think, about Godzilla Minus One and how that that was able to uh, have great spectacle while also have great character-driven drama. Uh, it's rare that anything gets both of those things right. And Squid Game, I think, was one of them. As for the potential of a, a Squid Game Season 2, uh, I felt two ways when Squid Game Season 1 ended. And I'm, I'm going to try to be as vague as possible uh, so as not to spoil Patrick Klepek and anyone else who hasn't seen it. <laughs> and, the three, and, the th- and the three of us. Yeah, and the three and other people have seen it. We're in a Facebook it. group by ourselves just like, hold right. on, guys! <laughs> <laughs> one of them is... One way I feel about it is... Uh, season one ends very clearly setting up something that could happen in season two. So it's like, mm. okay. okay, like it, it's a quasi cliffhanger, you know, like, but season one also felt like a complete story. Like at the end of it, I felt satisfied. I felt exhausted emotionally. Uh, I felt like, Hey, that was, that was a very satisfying and interesting journey I just took. Uh, and I am worried that, you know, if season two is not as good, uh, it will be like, oh, like they should have just ended it at season one. But there, there is proper setup at the end of season one for like something interesting to happen in season two. I am really curious what the structure of season two is going to be because one of the great things about season one is like, you know, roughly like every episode had a new game. Not, not exactly, but like in every episode you'd find out what the next game was. Mm-hmm, or, again, mm-hmm. approximately, not, not exactly, but. 
Um, and that was like just a great thing to like keep you. I want to see what the next game is. And I don't know. Are, are they going to do the same set of games with a different set of characters? Are they going to do a different set of games? Is it going to be a completely different structure com- entirely? Like, I don't know. Um, so a lot of questions, but I'm excited. And I think this will be a phenomenon, whether or not it's good. So Squid Game Season 2 coming back in 2024. No exact date, but it is going to be this year, along with new seasons of Bridgerton and The Diplomat. So those were all announced by Netflix recently. And uh, Patrick Klepek will catch up in time for uh, Decoding TV's coverage of Squid Game Season 2. So going to be a great time. Maybe we should have, make that like a bonus uh, yeah, series. Yeah, I, I, I feel like, like yeah, yeah I, I don't think it would take much uh, twisting of your arm to to revisit that show Absolutely. based on the way you're Absolutely. talking about it. So maybe yeah. we'll find a find a way to revisit that together later in the year when we get a sense when it's when it's closer. I would love that. I would love that. All right, Patrick Klepek, another big piece of news this week. Uh, we learned that John Stewart is returning to the Daily Show. Uh, he is going to be coming back as uh, a Monday host and executive producer who will, whose creative vision will help to shape the show. Uh, one of the things that made Jon Stewart quit the show was how grueling it is. Uh, you know, I mean, Patrick Klepek, we barely do this show once a week. And uh, that's exhausting. You know, so imagine <laughs> doing it four times a week. Uh, and needing to put all the creativity into it. I, I can't, you know, it's just like a lot. And that's why when he moved to Apple TV Plus uh, with his show, The Problem with Jon Stewart, he went to like a once a week schedule. Now, that show ended uh, reportedly because of creative and editorial differences. It seemed like what was reported was that uh, Apple wanted to uh, have some editorial voice over the content covered by the show and if john stewart wants to discuss things like ai and manufacturing in china he's got to clear it by apple because those are really important to apple and uh wouldn't you know it you know apple uh uh like when 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 they hire someone like john stewart he's gonna want to investigate things in the world that are interesting that might impact apple and uh i guess they didn't see that coming so (laughs) anyway he left that show and uh at the same time as that's happening uh, the Daily Show's Trevor Noah left as the host, and also the heir apparent, uh, Hassan Minhaj, was involved in a controversy over a New Yorker piece that accused him of fabricating many of the stories behind his one-man shows. So uh, in th- there's an opening for uh, a new-slash-old host of The Daily Show. In comes Jon Stewart, back in the chair, for one night a week. Also, reportedly, Paramount Plus in the process of uh, putting itself up for sale. Or sorry, not, not Paramount Plus, Paramount as mm-hmm. a whole. Uh, in the process of putting itself up for sale and uh, p- potentially having like a really well-respected comedian with a long history like Jon Stewart maybe makes the company more attractive. Paramount, as along with many other studios, need wins right now. So... Uh, the circumstances were right. The perfect storm happened where like all these stars aligned. Jon Stewart left. New host didn't work out. Paramount putting itself up for, you know, all these things aligned. And now Jon Stewart's back in the host chair in time for a very consequential election. Patrick Klepek, I'm curious. What was your first reaction hearing about this? Uh, I kind of rolled my eyes a little bit. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, seems a bit of a desperate move to head back to the daily show. I mean, uh, John Stewart, Stephen Colbert defined like they were such mainstays of 
where, what I, how I spent my evenings in high school, in college, uh, for better or worse, uh, defined a lot of how I thought about and engaged with politics in, in that era of my life in like late high school, uh, early college before I feel like I sort of rounded out into the more, like the more thoughtful person that I am today, which is normal. Like you kind of latch on to these characters, to these people that help you make sense of the world. And I think that was the appeal of Stuart, especially post nine 11 for a lot of, disillusioned youth that sort of didn't understand what was going on, why it was going on. And John Stewart was this really effective, very funny uh, way of kind of coping with the world. But I think ultimately looking back on that era, like Stewart was a, a great time waster, but he, you know, he didn't, I think he likes to think that he was part of like defining a political movement. But I think mostly what Stuart like encapsulates is a way of feeling good about yourself for a moment. And then you turn off the show and like nothing of the world actually changes. Um, and I always found, I think it's part of the reason I always found myself more drawn to Colbert, like the Colbert report when that spun off out of the daily show, because I found that, and there are plenty of problems you can have with, Colbert as well. Um, but that show was just much sharper, much more pointed, much more yeah. uh, activist, really, like trying to like build this. I remember like the whole arc of Colbert building a super PAC. Like, yeah, being, like, that was incredible. I thought it was and, incredible and- reporting, using comedy to enlighten something about how the system is broken, as opposed to Stuart, who I thought was a little like yelling at clouds as, as time mm-hmm. went on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, uh, first of all, I'm really glad you said all that because I feel exactly the same way. And I was worried, I was worried we were going to have to argue about this. Uh, I think there is this. Okay, let me table set. Mm-hmm. I'm in the same boat as you. John Stewart was essential viewing for me in college. Like I have spent, I'm going to say conservatively, thousands of hours watching John Stewart and Stephen Colbert, like watching the Daily Show, watching the Colbert back Report. To back, like, right, because they would back air to back. back to back. So yeah. I, my DVR would record it or I would time my dinner to it. And it's like, that's what I did Monday through Thursday or caught up on them late. Like I did not miss a single episode for the years that I was wrapped up in it. I remember distinctly like torrenting episodes of the daily show <laughs> and like putting them on my iPad too. And like yes. watching those at the airport. Yes. Like I, I was like obsessed with the daily show and like all the talent that came up there. So um, I've spent many, many hours watching John Stewart. I think he's enormously talented. Uh, and I think there's many things that his show did well. And in particular, uh, John Stewart's show really came into its own during the George W. Bush era. Like, and exposing a lot of the corruption and the lies, uh, not exposing, but like uh, putting a humorous slant on a lot of the uh, hypocrisy, the li- like a lot the of hypocrisy, Stuart- the, yeah. the complete just incompetence of that era of government. Uh, and, you know, I, I, th- I thought I did a marvelous job at it. I think there's the tendency of a lot of uh, people such as myself to look back on Jon Stewart as this kind of leftist who was speaking truth to power. And that is not an accurate view of him, in my opinion. You know, I think he was kind of left of center. Uh, and the biggest target he had, first of all, you said that he sees he saw himself as this uh, 
leader of this movement? I actually don't think so. I think he shirked his responsibility at every step of the way. Um, yeah, I think that's fair. At, that's at fair. very many points, people will be like, you're the voice of a generation, Dustin. And he's like, my show comes on the air after, you know, puppets making crank calls. He, he would <laughs> often right. like downplay the significance. I'm a comedian, not a politician. He, I'm a comedian, not a, poli- not a politician, yeah. not a journalist. And that gave him this very convenient perch from which he could like yeah. snipe at all these people. Uh, and it was very enjoyable, the sniping. Like uh, we got a lot out of, we got a lot of great entertainment out of it, but I think you're right that to, to say it made uh, any difference is probably deceiving yourself. Um, now, later on, John Stewart did do activist things. He did mm-hmm. uh, the 9-11, you know, uh, testimony that he gave and trying to get funding for first responders and so on. Like that did make a difference and should be admired. And there's no, I'm not, not questioning that at all. I'm, I'm purely talking about the majority of his time at the Daily Show uh, and kind of that work. There was also the rally to restore fear and or sanity. I don't know if you remember that. Dude, um, I think that's I think that's when the illusion broke. Exactly. For a lot of yeah. people was this very you should probably set it up because I think like it it sounds wild in retrospective. Like it, it's what it's what I actually have a clip from it that I can play. Oh, please, um, please. But the idea is that like he uh he was like, let's have a rally. And the idea is that I think he was sick and tired of what he saw as extremism on both sides of the political spectrum on television, right? On in the media. Well, his whole thing uh, was hypocrisy, right? Like, like that was like, if there was a, like a cornerstone of what the daily show specifically was pointing out was, well, if we just show them how hypocritical they're being, mm. their behavior will change. And so then mm. when the daily show ends at the beginning of the Trump era, in which we get a president in which shame, is not a stick like hypocrisy is actually part of the appeal as opposed to a character flaw. I think in many ways like that, when you look back on that era, when I look back on that era, like how I reacted to it, you feel a sense of like, well, the hypocrisy meant nothing. It's funny to laugh at empty calories are, they feel good for a reason. They're empty calories, but they still leave you feeling empty on the other side of it. Yeah, um, I don't know that this is how I characterized the rally. Like, I think it was it was really like, hey, there's uh, the, the media is too extreme. That's really what the the thing of the rally was. And we we the un like the silent majority are people who are not that extreme, and we are the tired center. of the media. The yeah, center, the center, mm. as it were, right? Mm. Perhaps centrist, you could call it. Right? Um, <laughs> here is a clip from uh, John Stewart speaking at the rally to restore sanity and or fear. Uh, I think this is from around 12, 13 years ago. This was not a rally to ridicule people of faith or people of activism or to look down our noses at the heartland or passionate argument or to suggest that times are not difficult and that we have nothing to fear. They are and we do. But we live now in hard times, not end times. And we can have animus and not be enemies. You know, that's the tone of the whole... He then goes on in that speech to talk about how the media hasn't caused our problems, but it's made them worse by making everything so extreme. And the extremism of the media is really one of the biggest problems facing America these days. Um, Hey, I think, uh, you know, John Stewart peaced out before Donald Trump became president. Like he, yeah. he left like around I think, that time. Yeah, retired. I believe like, like the, he ends in the spring 
during the primaries. I, I remember watching yeah, right. clips of, you know, Trump coming down, you know, the yeah. escalator like that very infamous moment and him being commenting on it. So I think it was it was right in that period leading up to right. him getting the nomination that, that Stewart uh, retires from, from the position. Spoiler alert. I don't think that the extremism in media was one of our biggest problems. I mean, no. it is a problem. I'm not going to say sure. that there's no issues with the media, but uh, I don't think that was like the existential threat facing us at that time. You know, um, and I think history has shown that has proven him really wrong on that front. His theory of um, the case of what was the problem with yeah. politics was incorrect and I think has only grown to be, I think... In some ways, it feels like slightly unfair because like he was wrong, but it's just he was so wrong. Like, in, like, <laughs> like, like the year, the years he, the moment he puts a period on his time with the Daily right. Show, it's as though history went. Well, time to turn to the next page because <laughs> oh, John Stewart was wrong about everything. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. Like, like, yeah, and that's that's hyperbolic. But I think the moment we entered into immediately, like pointed out like where he was pointing his finger was not where uh, the problems of America... Yeah, where, uh, where we should have been focusing mo most yes. of our attention our on. Our ire, and, who, we, yeah. who we consider evil, um, who is considered the problem, was not necessarily uh, polarized media shows. It's funny. Yeah. Look, I'll rewatch that Tucker Carlson, uh, John Stewart, uh, Crossfire clip. It's right. brilliant. Like, I love... Yeah. Like, stuff like that is what made me fall for him in the first place. But even that clip itself is at the heart of Stewart's whole mission his point during that era was well i'll just show you how stupid you sound and then like the the public will just make an informed decision i mm -hmm. regret to inform you that's not how <laughs> things played yeah. out and you've got a little more forceful with how you enact change i do think the media is a problem you know there, there there are many problems with the media and in specific specifically like the the right-wing media that's enabled someone like donald trump to rise spiral like it's it's not like there's nothing there um but you know, it's best summed up by John Stewart himself, who gave an interview to Kara Swisher when a few years ago when the problem with John Stewart was launching. And he said, quote, uh, almost everything that I believed and advocated for didn't come to pass and probably got worse, end quote. Right. Yeah. And so uh, that's his own assessment. I'm not it's not just me. That is his own assessment of the case. So I am really curious about whether or not his return to The Daily Show is going to yield different fruit. Now. Um, I think that when it came to the pro the problem with John Stewart, like the, there's a TV show called The Problem with John Stewart, uh, that he uh, he learned from a lot of the stuff he did wrong in The Daily Show. Um, he had a more diverse writers room. He tried to make his uh, politics more pointed. Uh, I think the show was not as good as The Daily Show, not as fun and freewheeling. Uh, but I could tell this is somebody who's still like in the process of growing. But he now re-enters the world of late night in a very different environment. Comedy Central is a shell of its former self. Like, I remember back in the day, it was producing original programming and helping to, like, launch tons of comics careers. And it's still doing a little bit of that, but, like, not nearly, you know, the, the world where there's, like, a broad city coming out of comedy is over. There's no, that's not happening it's anymore, just right? It's just a channel on your cable package at yeah, this point. Yeah. Um, and really, it's like The Daily Show. I mean, that's yeah, kind that's, of... That's the primary it, like live-action thing that they do. You know, that's... Uh, anyway, one of the most thing Like, pr probably one of their biggest drivers of, of traffic. Um, also, uh, we enter a very different political world in a very different media environment where, you know... People aren't, you know, you and I probably watch a lot fewer half-hour shows 
on TV than we did when The Daily Show was in its heyday. And so can this succeed? I don't know. Uh, I'm very skeptical. I'm I'm very I'm similarly skeptical as you are, Patrick Klepek. Uh, but I still think John Stewart's pretty smart. You know, like I still think he is pretty good at what he does. And well, I think I've changed, right? Like that's yeah, the yeah, yeah. I think like the most fundamental shift here is that I, as a political actor, my political beliefs, where I fall on the political spe- spectrum and where I spend my time, has changed. Where like, I don't need him. Like, he's not a guiding light for me and how I view the world anymore. And so yeah. I can totally see myself still tuning in and consuming the empty calories and laughing at the clips and the setups. And he's got great delivery. Like, But it's like, well, I don't need you anymore. Like, so I can still watch this. I can enjoy it. It's yeah. one. It's one show a week. But when it comes to how do I define how I look at the world. I think it's funny. I can actually point to, I think a similar arc you and I have probably gone on, which is one of your favorite films of the year, a movie I still haven't seen. I'm, I'm, I'm upset about it, which is how to blow up a pipeline was one of your favorite films mm-hmm. of this year. And I think that movie, it's existence, it's power. The fact that it's one of your favorite films of the year, I think in many ways might represent our own political shifts over like the last 20 years from like, Watching that in you know in in uh, in our teens and, and early twenties to where we arrive uh, now, um, and so what does he mean to a younger generation, or is this right. just? I frankly think this is millennial nostalgia bait, um, and he's going to get mm-hmm. a big payday, and it still might be kind of fun to watch. But does John Stewart have power anymore? No, but also it doesn't matter. Like there are different power at, you know power players in the world. Um, I think more people are going to watch. Uh, Oh, what's his face on on Twitch? Uh, it's uh, Hassan, right? The uh, yeah, uh, you know, I think that's where the the stewards of the world have shifted is into places like Twitch and YouTube, um, and it's not the Daily yeah. Show anymore. Uh, the Daily Show's audience in the time since John Stewart's been on the air has shrunk by seventy five percent. It's gone from two point two million viewers a night to five hundred seventy thousand, and the median age. Of the Daily Show has gone from forty eight point two years to sixty three point three years. <laughs> so oh, no. I don't know if it'll be relevant at all for the the yeah. younger generation, but it might be relevant for people like us and older. Patrick Club, <laughs> <laughs> great. Yeah, the the most prized demographic amongst advertisers. <laughs> um, so anyway, John Stewart coming back to the Daily Show. Uh, it's it's fair to say that Patrick Klepek and I both have a lot of mixed thoughts about it, but it's it's somebody who we've spent hundreds of hours watching, and yeah, so I'll be, I'll, it, I'm going to check it out. I'll be, yeah. I, my curiosity is going to get the better of me, and I will at least be checking in to see um, what his own arc is. Right, like yeah. from the Daily Show to the problem with John Stewart to this, is it just do put the same glove back on, or or does he have a different take? That I'll be curious just to see what his approach is like. Yeah. And I anticipate we'll cover it here on decoding TV when it happens. Anyway, those are a couple of the news items that we wanted to cover today on decoding TV. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. All right, let's get into the recap reviewing portion of the show. I do want to mention that next week on the podcast, our current plan is to discuss uh, the next episode of True Detective, which we are continuing to cover. And also, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, which is debuting on Prime Video, uh, our current plan is to watch the first half of the show. Um, So that is what we'll be covering next week on Decoding TV. Uh, All eight episodes of Mr. and Mrs. Smith debuting this week on Friday, I believe. So, uh, yeah, tune in to hear our conversation about Mr. and Mrs. Smith, as well as our continuing coverage of True Detective next week. But today, let's begin by discussing... Masters of the Air. So you're right, me? A girl with riding to is hard to find. Not if you know where to look. I'll miss you every second. Major Egan, you were the first pilot assigned to the 100th. Me and Buck Levin. You are in charge of 35 planes and 350 air crewmen. Don't you die on me before I get over there. All right, you're watching and or listening to Decoding TV. Let's talk about Masters of the Air, episodes one and two. I think the episode titles are just part one, part two, right? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm right about that. Um, so I will read the plot summary of these episodes from uh, the show descriptions. Uh, Part one, led by Majors Clevin and Egan, the 100th bomb group arrives in England and joins the 8th Air Force's campaign against Nazi Germany. And in part two, the 100th bombs German U-boat pens in Norway with the help of Lieutenant Crosby's navigating a damaged B-17 struggles to get back to Britain. So that's what happens in the first two episodes of the show. But Patrick Klepek, let's start by talking about whether or not you think uh, in a, a sentence or a couple sentences, people should watch this show. I feel like I might have tipped my hand earlier when I said Squid Game, a show that manages to uh, have a compelling roster uh, of characters, a, a large ensemble, and, and balance that with spectacle. Um, because I don't, I don't think Masters of the Air pulls it off. I, I would, I, I struggle to name many of the characters in the show. The show has a funny moment early on where it says, "Oh, these some of these two main characters are Bucky and Buck," and you know what? They might as well all be Bucky and Buck to me. Um, I was going to say, Bucky and Buck are the only two characters who I can confidently identify. I, I'm not 100% sure which one is which, but which also, one is which? but, but, uh, they point out, wait, so what, you're Bucky and you're Buck? They say that like three times during the show. So those are the only names that I really remember. Yeah. And it's a, it's a massive disappointment for me because Band of Brothers, uh, you know, this is the like third in a series of sort of Spielberg. Tom Hanks collaborations about World War II, uh, starting with Band of Brothers, going to the Pacific, and then now with Masters of the Air. Those previous two shows were on HBO, this on Apple TV+. Plus. Uh, I didn't watch the Pacific. I don't have a good reason for it. It just kind of went by me. But Band of Brothers was a defining 
uh, television show for me when I was younger. It's the first box that I bought on DVD, Blu-ray, 4K. I just continue to want to have a box of that show in in my house. It means a lot to me because I thought it did a wonderful job of balancing spectacle and characters and heart. And this show, I just have trouble connecting with. It has some interesting set pieces, some potentially interesting characters, but I find myself drifting moment to moment um, in, in a way that I think cuts to the heart of what the show is trying to do, which is depict air fights. And I think air fights are fundamentally difficult to convey character drama. And so then you're relying on the spectacle alone because you can't connect to the characters as well. And it just kind of has fallen flat for me in a way that I'm, I'm profoundly disappointed about for the expectations and excitement I had for the show. But what did, what did you make of it? Yeah, I would say I'm pretty mixed on the show. Uh, not bad, not, not a terrible show. Mm-hmm. You know, there's some shows we watch that are like pretty rough, better than twisted metal, you know, <laughs> <laughs> Put but, it on the box. <laughs> uh, but I think uh, everything you said is accurate. Um, I think that the show really struggles to, to ground the perspective in anyone that the audience really cares about. There is a lot of action in the show. You know, it's, it's telling Patrick Klepek. We watched the first two episodes of expats uh, this week as well, which we're going to cover next. Uh, that is a show where much less stuff happens mm-hmm. than in masters of the air. <laughs> but I think that we both found a bit more engaging. Cause at least I think you understand each of these characters. Uh, and also I think expats looks a lot better than the show. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Overall, I would say I'm in the same boat as you. I didn't really love this show that much. I'm not really feeling that motivated to continue it. And in fact, we will not be, um, we probably won't continue to cover the show in any meaningful way. Um, yeah. Uh, so those, those are my overall thoughts. Uh, I, I will say one other thing. The biggest problem for me with this show is that I think the visual effects are unconvincing. Uh, now people have different mileage. Like I've seen uh, some reviews where they say the visual effects are incredible and that's fine. Like, you know, enjoy your experience. I'm not trying to take away from it, but at no point did I believe that these people were in planes in the air, uh, shooting or dogfighting or whatever the term is during world war two. Uh, and that is not a statement I can make of other shows. Like for instance, um dunkirk christopher nolan's movie like that i definitely believe they went up and did that stuff um there is a movie i think with jonathan majors and glenn powell called devotion that i watched recently on paramount plus where it's i think it's world war ii and people flying planes and it's like i believed that those people were up there flying planes like the way it's shot the way visuals are used i so much of this show takes place in the air that you really need to believe that they're up there. And I honestly feel like the graphics look like PS4, PS5 graphics (laughs) of like these planes flying in the air. Uh All the stuff on the ground looks amazing. Like the sets, uh, the vehicles, the wardrobe, it all looks really convincing. Uh, But the stuff in the air, I just, whenever they cut to it, I'm just like, oh, there goes my immersion in the show. Like, I I feel like it doesn't look quite right to me. So, and And I think that's exaggerated by the lack of connection to the characters, right? Mm -hmm. Because your suspension of disbelief with visual effects is like 
especially when they the visual effects alone can't do the heavy lifting to like put you in a place, then it's in a relationship, a direct relationship with your ties to the characters. And I think that's where the show ends up really faltering. There are some truly spectacular and awe-inspiring sort of action sequences in which many times a character would die but I can't tell if they're one of the characters in the show. You know what I mean? Like, is this an right. ensemble character? Am I supposed to be sad right, <laughs> right now? Right. Or is this yeah. just, hey, we're we're depicting how brute like there's you see this a lot right. in war films, right? Like there are there are the, the characters we're following that have some measure of plot armor to so that we have a story to follow. And then there are people who are have squibs on and they're gonna die so that we can convey the horror of war. And this show, I when they would get into the air. I, I had trouble navigating who I'm following, um, who I'm who I'm anxious about, so that when like truly amazing, violent, upsetting sequences would happen in which a character would be peppered with bullets from from a German warplane or something would explode, I would I would have to have the characters then later inform me who died or who didn't die, right. and I think those things end up making those sequences so much worse where it's not just the visual effects taking you home. It's also, I don't know what the emotional stakes are for me and what I'm watching. And I think that just makes, it makes both problems worse. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you're basically wondering when someone dies, you're wondering, should I care about that? Which is not a, not a great place to be in the show. And I think, you know, it's, it's difficult because a lot of these people are wearing masks. Yeah. Uh, while they're in the air, their outfits are similar, and so the show I don't think does that much to to distinguish between them. Or it's not that it doesn't do that much; it, it hasn't done enough for us. Uh, yeah. Put it that way. So those are our overall thoughts on Masters of the Air, a show that we were both looking forward to for different reasons. Patrick, because of his attachment to Band of Brothers, um, Carrie Fukunaga directed the first couple episodes. You know, like he super talented director. Uh, who's directed True Detective and No Time to Die and a bunch of other things. So, like, um, somebody whose work I really admire. Uh, and unfortunately, it's very difficult for me to recommend this show. I will say, if you're really into World War II stuff, right? If you're like a diehard World War II fan, like, definitely, I think the show is worth checking out. Um, but we found the drama a little bit lacking for the reasons that we've discussed. Now, there's a couple of other things I want to mention about what happens in these episodes, Patrick Klepek. Um First of all, we spent a lot of time talking about what the show doesn't do well. You know, probably we should, <laughs> we should talk about what the show does do well. And there's mm-hmm. a couple of things I think it does do well. First of all, uh, I, despite the th- fact that it's hard to tell who these people's names are or tell them apart while they're in the air, I think the cast is actually pretty great. You know, yeah. I think like Austin Butler, very talented, very charismatic, uh, kind of, uh, you know, we just saw him in Elvis, but he's clearly like, oh, I, I believe that that's a very believable leader of a people. You know, I can understand people wanting to follow that man into battle and potentially die for him. You know, like that's com- makes complete sense. And uh, rest of the cast, very talented. So, like, there's a lot of great things about the cast. I think despite how I think the air stuff looks, the practical stuff is actually really great. Uh, there is a lot of texture to what it's like to be in a plane that high decades ago that's you're supposed to be able to shoot munitions out of and for instance like there's one scene where like this guy is trying to to adjust his weapon or you know the gun is jammed or something and he tries to like adjust it and he touches it and he gets burned because it's so cold because you're he's so high up in the sky 
uh, that the it's like negative 22 degrees or whatever up there. And so if there's like a crack in the in the glass or whatever, it's like you will freeze to death or your weapons will freeze. And uh, I, I love those like little details of like, oh, wow, this is physically taxing and treacherous to, to do what these guys did um, just in the normal function of daily activities. And on that note, I will also add that one of the things I really liked was in the two episodes we've seen, a lot of bad things happen even when they're not doing the actual mission. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's like <laughs> on the trip to, on the trip back from, like, we're doing a test run, you know, like somebody I think dies during a test flight, right? Like, uh, and, and so there's a lot of just ri- like ambient risk at all times of being in this situation that I think the show does a really good job of conveying, right? Like you, you, you don't even need to be like actively bombing the enemy. You're just like literally on your way there and something terrible happens to your plane. And then the next thing you know, you're, you're in a terrible situation, you know? So uh, I thought those were all really nice touches to the show that I thought were worth praising. Patrick Klepek, any reaction to any of that? Well, I, there's uh, kind of a, a clever trick the script does for the first episode where, um, you know, when they're signing up to be part of sort of like, you know, the Air Force uh, component of of the war, it's like they describe the like some of the initial flights they're going to go on as observational flights. And certainly that suggests like, ah, I'm in a plane. I'm looking around. And right. that kind of the, the whiplash of like what an observational flight actually might mean, which which could mean heading into, you know, an airspace full of, you know, flack uh, that's being like shot at you that could that could take down. You could be on a mission where, uh, well, there's just too much cloud cover. And while we just lost dozens of people, I guess we should turn around and go home. I think the show, I think my disappointment stems from not connecting to the characters more because I think the the broader setup it has with uh, Brandon brothers has always tried to convey. If there's a through line between Brandon brothers, Pacific and masters of the air, it is trying to convey the meat grinder aspect of war in which you are showing up to something in which you are almost assuredly not going to come out. Even if you do come out of it, you will not be the same. You will be traumatized. You could be physically uh, disabled. uh, And most likely you're going to die. And like, those are the stakes for all of these shows. Um, and my understanding is the Pacific is the most horrendous of, of the three because the situation was the most horrendous uh, of the three. But I, I do think the show is successful in establishing that. For every moment that I was having trouble finding myself navigating the characters and who I wanted to be following, who I was interested in, the moment it had started establishing sort of like the wartime stakes and like what these young kids were being thrown into. I found that to be very harrowing and interesting. And that is where the amount of practical work it's a, you know, again, I think I described it to you in private as this fits the veneer of a lot of Apple TV stuff for better and worse, which is extremely expensive and often boring. And then sort of your interest with the material kind of decides where you sort of like, I think Monarch for you is an extremely expensive, often boring show. And I had a wonderful time with it. And I mm-hmm. think there's a lot of material on Apple TV that that falls into that category. And I think this is one of those. But uh, when it got like when it gets to sort of establishing that baseline through line for this show of imagine how horrific it was to be to step into these shoes as these people, um, 
I, like that part of it worked for me. And I just wish the rest of it elevated me to a place where I was fully emotionally invested. But just as a showcase for sets and design, I mean, look, if you want to put on a show that you kind of want to just, again, I'm not trying to be condescending and like describing this, but like having it on in the background where you can just check in and then luxuriate with like <laughs> what's been built here. Like it's gorgeous to look at. It's too yeah. dark. I don't know how to just, maybe you can describe this better for me, but it has that tendency in a lot of modern streaming shows of like, I wish someone would turn on a light. Like it's mm-hmm. just dark in general in a way that I don't quite understand. It's just kind of lit oddly in a way that I, I notice in a lot of streaming streaming shows. But, you know, I'll, I would clock back in and it's just, you see the money on the screen in a way that is very, very impressive. Um, and, and the way it recreates uh, a, lot, a lot of the stuff that's on on the ground, like you said, I had a great time with, and it's just, it's very visually resting. And I just, yeah, I wish the characters caught up. I will say it has an epic opening credit sequence. Is, is this uh you know, it's been, I, I never watched band of brothers. I didn't see the Pacific. Is this a uh, similar in style to the band of brothers? It is a, it credits? is a, um, yes, it is a, tr- I don't know what they're calling this trilogy, but like of the Spielberg Hanks, uh, world war two television series over the last 20 plus years, a, it speaks to the fact that Apple released the credits as like a promotional thing. Right. Um, it was like, here are the credits to Masters of the Air. Because that like having well, it, it long, also it's reveals really long. scenes. It, it's like two minutes long. Yeah. And it reveals scenes from the entire show. So mm-hmm. like spoilers for future episodes of the show. Um, but anyway, epic opening credits. A couple of other things I just wanted to call out. There is a bicycle race that happens in the sh- in the show where like the, the men are blowing off steam before like a mission and that was an incredible sequence i thought uh the way it was shot like the the camera's following the bike through this like very narrow space and i just, i don't know i just thought it was like oh what a nice lovely sequence of them racing bikes so i just wanted to mention that real quick uh and then barry kyogen's in the show <laughs> and <laughs> He's great as usual, and I just thought it was very amusing because Barry Kogan is Irish, I believe, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and he plays a, a somebody from Boston, I think, or New York, who is also – I'm pretty sure it's Boston – who is also Irish. But he has a Boston accent in this. <laughs> and I will say that his accent is actually excellent. I have – I grew up – in and around Boston, I have heard a lot of terrible Boston accents in my life on film, and Barry Kogan has one of the best Boston accents I have heard. And it's just funny that he is also uh, he like says he's Irish in the show, and he's Irish in real life, but he's from Boston in the show. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> that was just a weird weird thing I wanted to point out. But Barry Kogan's also always excellent. And oh, I, I he's mean, great in the show. if anything, that that was like the only exaggerated my disappointment was like whenever this weirdo shows up in something like i know i'm i know i'm honest and the bits that he, i mean he's great like he is he is great in the in the show and every time i'm he's not there i'm asking mm-hmm. where is the little weirdo um put it back on screen <laughs> and the other thing i noticed was um steven spielberg's son is in the show mm. um uh not, not, not you know i think only in a couple episodes not a main character necessarily but spielberg's uh children are like starting to sort of appear in different Hollywood productions. And mm. uh, I, I I thought it was interesting that his son shows up in this one. Yeah. 
Uh, I liked the kind of conflict slash dynamic between the British soldiers and the U.S. soldiers, and you really they really did a good mm-hmm. job of casting both of those groups of people. <laughs> yeah, they did. It's like, oh, those are, that's the most American group of people I know, and then like, oh, that's an extremely British group of people, and you kind of get a sense of hey. Uh, yeah, we defeated the Axis uh, during World War II, but it was like a coalition of all these people who were like so different, right? That came together to, to make it happen. So anyway, I probably should have opened with a lot of these things that I liked about the show. Uh, but <laughs> overall, you know, because I think I, I, it sounds like I'm way more positive on it than Patrick. You know, like mm-hmm. I, there's many things about the show that I liked, but ultimately it didn't quite succeed in getting me to care about these characters or really getting me thrilled about a lot of these air sequences. I, I think that also I'm going to call this out. The use of voiceover narration, I think is kind of disastrous. Like I don't, I don't know what they're trying to do with the voiceover. Um, because like fill in the emotional gaps of the show that you don't have. <laughs> like, I mean, well, well I, like <laughs> you start the, the voiceover is like the guy who um, is, uh, getting airsick, right? Mm-hmm. Like he's the guy who's doing the voiceover. And then it's like, and then the voiceover just vanishes for like vast portions of time. And then the, the, a new voiceovers come in and I'm just like, I, if the point of the voiceover is to feel, make me feel really attached to the character who is doing the voicing over, I think it failed. Like it, it just didn't succeed at a very basic task of voiceovers. Um, so that was also kind of weird and disappointing. So a- anyway, yeah. These are all part of the same problem, which is like getting you to be attached to these characters, getting you to care about the characters. Unfortunately, I don't think uh, the show really achieved that. So, And you haven't seen Band of Brothers. And so I think your impulse here should be don't watch Masters of the Air Episode 3 if you have the inkling. You need, you need to at some point watch. If I will watch Squid Game, then I need yeah. to get David to watch Band of Brothers. Um, Indeed. And then we'll meet in the middle. All right. Well, those are our thoughts on Masters of the Air episodes one and two airing right now on Apple TV Plus. Patrick Klepek, let's talk about expats on Prime Video. I just sometimes want to be alone, where I'm not somebody's wife, not somebody's mother, where I'm not defined by tragedy. Don't you ever miss it? Home. I like our life here. <laughs> the help the drivers makes everything easier. I see his family. You know you always say that, right? You're her employer, not her friend. All right, welcome to Decoding TV's coverage of Expats episodes one and two. Patrick Klepek, let's start real quick by talking about whether you think people should watch this show. What do you think, Patrick Klepek? Oh, how sad do you want to be? Um, I I am quite taken by expats. I find myself drawn to sad stories. I use a lot of television and movies to experience catharsis and to work through my own like emotional reactions to tragedies like grief imagine tragedies i just i find that to be like very therapeutic and so um you know expats is a show that uh obviously has a great tragedy at the center of it that we don't know the complete details of involving uh, a missing child um and i i find myself pretty taken by these characters and the central 
mystery is the wrong term. It's not about, I don't think this is a show about finding answers necessarily as much as it is a show about the messiness of processing grief. You know, I think the leftovers is like the quintessential show about grief and what it means to process it. It was a show that was very central to me processing the passing of my father. And so I find myself really taken to stories that, um, portray grief as a very complicated, often toxic process. And so like that being kind of the hook here of like, what does this family do? Um, I find really compelling and interesting and just, I mean, it's, you know, it's Nicole Kidman. I, I, I will watch her in basically anything. And I think she's compelling here in the way she's compelling in so many other works. And so between the two of those things, I, I never heard of this show before you recommended we check it out. Um, I know you were a fan of the showrunners uh, previous work. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm in, I'm, I'm here for the sadness and I don't know where this show is going. I can imagine a lot of ways that it's potentially unsatisfying, but I'm, I'm surprisingly in so far on expats, despite the completely dour nature of the whole, of the whole endeavor. Yeah. Uh, I think there's a lot to recommend it. Uh, it's a beautiful show, well acted, but yeah, it is quite depressing and it does spend quite a bit of time luxuriating in sadness. Uh, and so that's just something you need to be aware of before you watch the show. Uh, but there's a lot of strong components. I would say I'm like definitely more positive on the show than masters of the air. Same. Um, but it's a little bit, um, it's not, I would say a home run based on the two episodes we've seen so far. Uh, and one of the things I would say is it's quite theatrical is what I would put it. And, and what I mean by that is a lot of the emotions, um, feel exaggerated. It honestly feels like a play a lot of the time. Um, mm. And uh, that can be a little bit distracting given how naturalistic a lot of the environments are in the show. So anyway, uh, I, I would say overall it's it's worth checking out the first episode or two. Um, and, you know, obviously we don't know if it's going to add up to anything uh, by the end, but there are some really strong performances and some really interesting subject matter here. So uh, I'd say worth checking out. Let's talk about what actually happens in the episodes. In uh, reading the plot descriptions from uh, the the website, uh, in the first episode, The Peak, three expat women living in Hong Kong cross paths at a birthday party where it becomes evident they share a mysterious connection from their past. Then in episode two, Mongkok, we learn one year earlier, Margaret and Mercy meet at an extravagant yacht party, forging an unlikely connection as Hillary wrestles with whether she wants to start a family. An incident occurs that will forever change the course of all of our characters' lives. End quote. So the show, <laughs> I will say I was kind of irritated in the first episode because they kept referring to this big mystery of what mm -hmm. happened. Like, what? Mm -hmm. Oh, this big grief and tragedy. And, and they keep referring to it over and over again. And I'm like, we get it. You haven't told us what it is. You want us to wonder what it is. Now, I'm glad that they got right to it. The second episode, they like the second episode explains everything that that led up to the first episode. I don't know how I feel about this, Patrick Klepek. Like, um, I think there is this concept in uh, television of a backdoor pilot where like you would late, but often it would happen late on in the season where it'd be like flashback to before we knew any of these characters in episode one, uh, this is what happened. 
and uh, it's it's interesting to have that happen in episode two, uh, as in the form of a flashback, pretty much, right? Um, but what did you what did you think of the structure? Because uh, let's just put it this way: I think if they played the episodes in opposite order, it would not be as effective. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Or, or it would not have the dramatic tension that you get achieved in episode one. But at what cost is my question? What did you think of the episode order, Patrick Lubick? Yeah, I'm with you. I think it would have been more effective as like a singular 90 minute like pilot that like got a little more to the point because you're right. Like, okay, something happened to one of their kids. It's really traumatic. They're dealing with it or not dealing with it. Um, but like, what are the details of what occurred? Because so much hinges on how did this happen? Like the like the loss of a child will be traumatic no matter what occurred, whether it was disease or an accident, like, or, or something else, like the, 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 having a child in the world, you brought into the world, you love, you care for, and then they're gone, especially at an excruciatingly young age, it's going to be traumatic, but like the details here matter. So we can connect with the characters like on their level, like what, what are they experiencing? So I can have a sense of their interiority or like how I relate to them. And I think that gets at, a lot of the issue is like, by the time we get to where we're at in the show, which is all that's out right now, you know, we've seen the first two episodes. It's like, okay, I feel like the foundation has been laid, but I feel like that foundation could have happened significantly faster and right. been just as effective. And so I find myself okay with where we ended up, but also in like rereading the summaries of the episodes, um, like in preparation for this, like, wow, we sure did a lot before we kind of figured out the whole hook of this show. And I hate to call the disappearance of a kid a, a hook, but I mean, this is this is what the show is going to center around, is this child Gus going missing um, and what is the ripple effect on these characters? And so I'm with you that I sort of see in retrospect what the writer, showrunner, whatever the case may be, was, was going for, but I feel that it, it kind of takes some of the tension out of the first episode because I was like, you was like, I get it, but what happened? Um, and not in a like intrigued way and more of a, like, yeah, like an, can, can an, an annoyed the, way. Like you get were to the clear, point, right. You were clearly I catch up withhold- to the characters. Right, right, right. You are clearly withholding this information just to generate tension. And it's like, I'm trying to think of like, what would the circumstances be under which I would be like more okay with that? You know? And I think it would be like, like, the question is, what is the purpose of starting the story where they do, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's just to draw like draw out for the first hour this mystery of what happened. Um, was there any other function to that? I, you know, I, I don't know. I do think if you played the episodes in reverse order, uh, that it would feel a lot different. Um, and I, I do think the second episode, or I, I should say. The first episode, which in my fictional world is your second episode in this alternate universe, would feel more tedious. You know, like it would be like we just saw the thing happen. Now they're they keep talking about it over and over. Like, why do they keep referencing (laughs) the thing that we just saw? You know, like I I think it would feel more tedious. And so I don't know. I'm not. I'm just not a fan of that. Like, I think if you if you're gonna play around with like withholding information like that, you should have a really good reason for it. Uh, and I don't know that the show um, 
makes the case that it has a really good reason for it, right? Um, no, I, I agree. I think I think it, you know, it, maybe that is to the the show's broader sort of ethos of luxuriating, right? And I think this mm-hmm. is a there are times where luxuriating in a moment, I think luxuriating in grief, even if I performed to a uh, exaggerated level, is is okay because. Um, but I think here, this is where the show gets itself into, into some trouble where it's just, it feels, it feels long. And especially when that mystery is like the death, like the, the, I guess, you know, the the mystery of what happened to this child. I don't know. I just, I just found myself wishing the show was, had kind of sped up. And so like some version of like, it's like all the materials are here in these first two episodes. I just disagree with the order of operations. So like, I don't have a problem with these characters, these storylines, like where we're at with these characters. It's just the order of operations to get to everybody being on the same page to watch things play out from here. And uh, so I guess maybe I'm a little more forgiving because I, I'm a mark for a story like this. Like I have two Mm -hmm. kids. I think about it constantly, what it would be like if one of them was to walk away. I'm, you know, you know, I was just at a function last night at my kid's school where it's like, hey, if you are not, if we get separated and you're nervous, this is the spot we come back to. That's what we always talk about when we go somewhere that's crowded as we pick an iconic spot that if you had to talk to a stranger or someone mm-hmm. in security, like this is the spot you tell them to come back to. Um, like this is where your parents said to go. And so I'm just like, I like sad stuff. I got kids, sad kid stuff. It's like, okay, like. I'm here to be sad and, and sit in this imaginary sad story. Um, so that makes me really intrigued to see what comes next. Um, because now at least we've gotten to a place where I'm emotionally on the same page with all the characters. Uh, but I wouldn't blame anyone for getting 45 minutes in the first episode and going <laughs> like, uh, you know what I mean? Like this is kind of gonna be like your mileage may vary. And I wouldn't, right. I think calling this show boring is not in I think it's slow and then it's just a matter of like where do you fall on yeah a lot of these different hooks on the show on whether you're going to be patient enough to get to where the show gets by the end of the second episode I'll just say one last thing about this whole ordering of the episodes and then I, I'll move on um but I it just occurred to me you know the show that this podcast was based off of uh Westworld you know it used to be called mm-hmm. decoding Westworld and the first episode of Westworld you're introduced to, I think it's Teddy played by James Marsden, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and he is like the sir, he is like the audience circuit. He's like, oh, you know, oh, I'm coming into the old Westworld to like have a little adventure. And like the show fools you into thinking like he's going to be the protagonist of the show. And then, of course, you quickly find out he's not the, pro- it's some, you know, it's other people are the protagonists. Um, but that would be a reason why you would, that's a reason why you would play the show in such a way that not all the information is available is like, it's from the perspective of someone who doesn't know, right? Like um, James Morrison's character doesn't know what's actually going on in that scene. Right. And so then he finds out and then it's like, Oh, like you're finding out with him. Everyone in the show already knows what happened. Like (laughs) there's no one in the show who doesn't know what happened. So it's like, it's just a bunch of people being like, Hey, you don't, you, the, I know what happened, but you, the audience don't know what happened yet. You know, in the first episode. Okay. Anyway, enough about that. Uh, I want to talk about a couple of other things that the show, I think, does interestingly. First of all, it's an in- incredibly beautiful show. Like, Oh, my God, yeah. Just every shot feels extremely well calibrated. Um, 
obviously the streets of Hong Kong are beautifully rendered and uh, the, the shot composition I think is overall just really strong. Um, the, uh, the, there's this kind of bookending construct of the show that I think is kind of interesting where one of the characters of the show, Mercy introduces the show by saying, Hey, do you ever wonder about all these people who like ended up causing these tragedies? Like, and she goes through these stories of people who like caused their twin brother to be paralyzed or accidentally murdered someone or whatever. Right. And, and she's like, we never hear about those people. We always hear about the victims. What about the people who did the terrible thing, you know, by accident. And we, we get the sense that this is what that story is going to be about. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just think that's like kind of interesting. Like, it's like, Oh, like, you know, it's, it's an interest. It's something I've wondered about. And it's something that like is, but it's interesting that the show kind of, that there's this other meta layer, you know, like stuff that's not take. As far as we know, she's not a journalist working on this project. You know, this is just mm-hmm. her talking directly to the audience, fourth wall breaking um, stuff. So uh, I think that's kind of, you know, it, it was fine. It worked for me, but it's just like, it's not a typical thing that happens in all shows. So I thought it was worth pointing out. Um, and then the show makes like a bunch of interesting creative decisions you know uh artistic decisions like the final shots of episode two i thought were really beautiful where uh it's this flashback that nicole kidman's having um and then you see kind of what the night market is at various points in time and how one location can have all these different significances depending on when and what circumstances you intersect with it i thought that was a really beautiful way to to end that that episode i'll say one other thing i wanted to mention which is I like that. Uh, I, I think Gus is the name of the child. Yeah. And I was thinking to myself, "Wow, this child is is uh, pretty irritating." Um, and, and also, like, reminds me of my nephew when he starts like throwing tantrums. You know, mm-hmm. like sometimes, mm-hmm. like these kids get into this headspace that they can't get out of. Right. Where well, like, where I've like, got a, I got a three year old who yeah. is well in the throes of that emotional state. (laughs) Right. And they just, they just get this and they can't get out of this. You know, it takes them like an hour to like calm down. Um, and I was thinking, wow, like Gus is really irritating. But then I was thinking, wow, that kid is actually an extremely good actor because there's plenty of times when he's not doing that. Mm -hmm. And so he must be able to like control it to some degree or, (laughs) you know, maybe they only took the best takes or whatever. Uh, but I basically just like, I, I have all the praise, for Gus's child acting. I thought it was really good. Uh, what do you think about the character of Gus? How, ma- how many times do you think uh, they, <laughs> like the sequence where he is wearing his like Transformers costume and mm-hmm. he can turn himself from the robot into the car. I have to imagine he was like, how many takes did they have? Where it's like, all right, Gus is, all right, Gus is back in the car again. Like, no, Gus, get out of the, get out of the car. Like, no, Gus is back in the car because it's yeah. such a cool little bit. I have to imagine right. there's just like, an hour of like trying to corral Gus into like, like doing the take. And he's like, no, I'm just going to go back into this little robot. I mean, I think he's a, um, he's a very believable, irritating, uh, three-year-old. Um, I don't think they state, uh, Gus. Very very adorable too. Very cute kid. So is my, so is my child. My three-year-old, I adore. And she is like equal, like that age is um there's a reason they call it a uh, can call it a three-nager for a reason is because mm-hmm. they have the emotional intelligence to know what they like and don't like um uh but not the emotional intelligence to control like these feelings mm-hmm. that they have yeah. and so you have kids that are physically capable 
emotionally unstable, and that that creates very volatile situations for the people that that are around them. That is only exaggerated by the circumstances of, uh, like the family by having like explicit help that is essentially a co-parent role. You know, mm-hmm. I don't have experience like parenting that way. Of help, like in the event that like. I have like babysitters or friends or, you know, my mother that helps occasionally, but like it's me and my wife. And I think the really fascinating dynamic with the family here is having someone that is so ever present in the family's lives that they graduate. And there's a reason that, you know, they call her family because they, this is not just someone who comes through and sweeps the floors. This is somebody who like cooks, cleans, reads books at night. Like this is, you know, much more intertwined emotionally with the the lives of, of these children. Um, but yeah, I was a I was a fan of Gus I, because I can see so much of my kid in him, and then <laughs> but maybe that, that didn't help with my reaction then to Gus wandering off because I could one hundred percent sing my dipshit kid do the exact <laughs> like it just takes it takes no time at all five seconds for, five seconds and then it's it's over one right? like one absolutely like uh, you know and i think about that a lot as we're gearing up for a, a trip to to disney in, in march where it's just like i it's just so easy it is it is so easy for me to empathize with what happens there and also frankly with um with the girl who gets distracted like you're on your phone i mean it's just yeah it's a ugh. I really love that whole sequence because she's trying to figure out Mercy's trying to figure out, oh, should I pay for the meal? And then she goes out and then and then I think she's texting your friend like, should I charge for this? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, and it just really does a good job of capturing how your concerns in life can change rapidly. Yeah. Right. Like in that moment, she's like, should I should I ask Nicole come in for money? And then like literally (laughs) 10 minutes later, it's like you'll be lucky if you like she doesn't press charges against you. Right. Like. Uh, and I, I just thought that was a, a, like a really nice, like touch of like, um, it's not like mercy is being an asshole or, or, but she's, her concerns are just completely not where they should be. Right. And I think it's like, that's often the case of it. We don't see the danger come in, in our lives. Like when the danger arrives. Um, so that part really resonated with me of being like, should I charge her for this? And then the kid goes missing, you know? So, well, and um, you know, I, obviously she's not a parent, you know, she's kind of a, a sitter, like a caretaker in this situation. But, um, I mean, like as a parent, you're always making calculated choices on like, there's so many things to be distracted by a device or something else. And you are not always 100% paying it. I mean, so I'm, I was actually like, deeply sympathetic to that situation where like, I mean, God, you know, I hope nothing similar happens to me, but you are, you're always taking calculated risks with your, you're not always a hundred percent paying attention to the child. You're sort of assuming right. they'll be in the orbit and then you hope you don't have tragedy strike. And in this case, tragedy does, does strike. Do you have any like uh tracking devices, Patrick Klepek? Like, you know, maybe like an air tag wristwatch, anything like that you're, you're considering? We, uh, so I'm, I was, one of the things my wife and I talked about a lot when we had our, our oldest was we desperately did not want to become helicopter parents. You know, like I grew up in an era pre-cell phones, pre-tracking, yeah. and parents just had to, you know, like you just had to, I mean, you might get into trouble, but like you were out doing stuff. And these days you can know everything about your kids' lives. And so right. I think it becomes incumbent on the parent to draw lines for themselves. Um, and I try to draw upon... Like, how did I feel as a kid and how would I feel if my parents had access to that kind of information? So I remember, um, 
I remember the first time that my kid, my oldest had to take a bus. She was, had to take a bus from her daycare to school and then would go to school and then had to catch a bus from the school back to the daycare. And there are people out there helping and, but like, there's a lot on the kid to follow the instructions and do all that. And I had a spare air tag. So I did throw it in her bag and just kind of tucked it away in a corner. And then eventually she found it. It was like, what's this? And I like took it out. It was like slightly embarrassed, but for a month or so, it gave me great comfort to just be able to see she made it to the daycare. She made it back to the school because it was just in her backpack and she always knew she had to take that. Um, and, but like there were other situations where I remember the first time she asked me if she could go to her, her best friend's house, which is a neighbor's about three houses down. And it was like in the summer, we don't have a busy street. And she's like, could I go by myself? And she was five and uh, I remember I was like, I asked my wife, I was like, I think she can go down the street. I'll like, we'll watch her from the window. And then it was just the two of us giving her permission, but then also <laughs> watching from the window. She did her, she totally did her job. And then the second time that she asked that, I forced, I, I forced myself to not look and was just, I sat on the couch and I just like sat there for a couple of minutes and then like texted my neighbor. And I was like, did she get there? And she's like, yeah. And I was like, good, good job, Patrick. Like, you you let her out of sight and she crossed the street by herself but it's hard I mean, you did check immediately afterwards but you you didn't I did, watch but it like it's way. a you kind of yeah. have to check yourself as a parent because there's right. there's so much more you can do and i think be invasive in your children's lives and i it's important to me that my children like the world is full of danger and they they got to figure it out themselves to some degree but you know it's always a that's a, a tough line to navigate and it's different for for each parent for sure it's wild to consider in light of, you know, that we were children of the 80s and it was just mm-hmm. so much different. You you know, your parents would not even <laughs> would not even like look, you know, they, they wouldn't even consider looking and be like, get the F out of the house. Like, you know, well, oh, you're going how, down how the street. Goodbye. You, right? yeah, I guess bye. they could call the couple of friends that, you know, yeah. but if you drove your bike to the mall, like what yeah. do they, what are they going to do? Oh, you're going to the mall, going to the mall, mom. Bye. You won't hear from me in five hours. Hopefully nothing <laughs> terrible happened. You know, like, yeah, that's, well, what, it, what? that's what it was. <laughs> One of my parents' big rules, there was this uh, indoor mall about a mile from our house. and the But to get there was a a really dangerous collision course inter- like intersection. Like uh, there were just like seven streets that collided this one light. And so my mom was like, you are not allowed. You are not old enough to go to that, uh, to that mall. And I was like, okay. But in between the mall and across one of the busy roads was a McDonald's. And but we were also not, she was like, that one busy road is just one of the two busy roads. You're banned from going across either of those busy roads. You have to be driven there if you're going to go to the mall. You're, you just cannot be trusted. And so, of course, at one point, I went with my all my dirtbag friends and we went to McDonald's. And as we are getting out of the McDonald's, my mom happened to be like going to the grocery store. And it was like slow-mo. You could like see your life fracturing into a million pieces as she slow rolls up. And my mom didn't really swear. And she was just like, what the fuck are you doing? And it's like, all right, guys, well, I'm going to leave. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm screwed. I, might, I probably won't see you guys for a couple of weeks. And immediately got, immediately got grounded. F- f- fair. To be, 
I screwed up, um, but got just caught in the most embarrassing, hilarious. Yeah. I mean, my friends were going, ooh, and my mom's like, I'm going to call your parents, too. You're all in trouble. So. Yeah, it's it, it was a double edged sword. Basically, you could you could you would be unsupervised. You know, it, it sounds like when um when I was in college, you know, and we were taking exams and the person, <laughs> you know, he's like, hey, uh, here's the situation. No one watches you when you take your exams. Like no one like proctors or anything to make sure you're not cheating. Uh, but the flip side is if you do cheat, you are in huge trouble and your life will probably be ruined. Like that's kind of, <laughs> <laughs> the, the less supervision you have, like the worst consequences are when something terrible happens. Yes. Um, so anyway. Uh, all right. Expats. Anything else to say about the first couple episodes? I think, uh, y- you know, again the first episode i was just talking about how theatrical it was a lot of the emotions felt very you know like oh i'm seeing i'm seeing nicole kidman at a party and i'm freaking out but by the way my reaction to seeing nicole Kidman at a party um <laughs> but, for, but for different reasons um and uh and you know nicole kidman like accosting this woman and it just felt like very like you know uh very it felt like i was watching it on a on a on a uh, like a, watching a play on a stage, you know, of like these people being like, the emotions are so big. And like, in general, I don't think people process things this way. I think it's much more subtle the way people react to other people who have been in tragic situations like this. Um, so o- over the top feels like a little too extreme, I think, to describe what I'm feeling. But it just felt very like heightened in a way that I thought was a little bit distracting, given how grounded a lot of the show feels. Yeah, uh, I, I agree. It's a little melodramatic. Yeah, it doesn't yes. feel consistent with... Um, the tone of the rest of the show. I'll also just say one thing. There's this character named Essie who is uh, the, the kind of housekeeper. A lot of nice touches with Essie. First of all, the child being very attached to the, to the housekeeper, I thought was very apt. Also the child speaking Tagalo, which is like her language. It's Mm -hmm. not. um, And I think the show is very specific, right? Mercy is Korean, but she's living in Hong Kong. And, you know, um, Gus is speaking Tagalog, which is not any of the languages that are otherwise spoken in the household. So there's like there's like a lot of specificity in how um, that's all plays out. And so I, I thought that was all very plausible. Uh, and Nicole Kidman's character saying like, oh, she's like family. It's very, very um, patronizing. You know, it's mm-hmm. very, very like she thinks she's reaffirming how good she is as a person for like befriending and making this person part of their family but it's like no it's it's like when your workplace says we're all a big family you know <laughs> yep it's like it's like when you're at the office and they're like welcome to the you know jiffy lube family you know and it's like it's not really a family and, mm-hmm. and it's very patronizing when you say it that way and uh i am curious like to what degree this show is going to be a critique of the rich i, I think it hasn't really been that much so far, you know, like all, all, all the, the two of the characters are rich. One of them isn't. And I'm curious, like to what extent cl- class is going to be commented on in the show. Um, other than like this general, like they're kind of oblivious, which is what it is right now. But like, I don't know that it's going to be anything beyond that. Patrick Klepek, any other thoughts on anything I've said or, or expats episodes one and two? Uh, no, but I will probably, keep up with it to some degree i don't know if i'll keep pace week week to week but i'm uh i i want i want to watch at least one more episode to get a sense of what right. the arc of the show you know i feel like maybe one more the show is gonna have to tip its hand a little bit on like where are we going and like where are these 
storylines threaded together. And I want to give it at least one more before I decide to kind of punt from it entirely. But I'm, I'm intrigued enough to, to keep watching. Um, and like I said, the, the, the sadness intrigues me. All right. Uh, I feel the same way. So we'll probably be covering this at some point in the next month or two when the show finally comes to a conclusion. Uh, but there's enough stuff there that makes it worth checking out. It's a very beautiful show. It's Expats on Prime Video. And that is Decoding TV's conversation about it. Let's get to our final show of the day, True Detective, Episode 3. Suspect is Raymond Clark. Consider him armed and dangerous. Hey! Clark and Annie Case. nobody knew they were together. Why keep it a secret? Did you ever get this feeling like you just want to disappear? scientists this is not how you die in the cold see that who's out there all right patrick klepik let's talk about true detective night country episode three i'm gonna read the plot summary while hank leads the search for clark prior asks danvers about the murder suicide case that drove a wedge between her and navarro and navarro and danvers seek out a local hairdresser for insight on annie patrick klepik uh, overall thoughts on the episode? Uh, strong. Um, I, I found myself, you know, still really interested in this world. I'm glad that, you know, I mentioned, I think on the previous episode that I was hoping we'd get these two characters in a blender faster, uh, <laughs> you know, like pretty fast. And I, th- I think the dynamic these two main characters share is really interesting. Um, I think there's a pretty compelling mystery about their past that, the way this particular episode is edited uh, makes me very fascinated to find out what ultimately is, you know, what's the wedge uh, that is like led to this sort of emotional gap between between the two of them. And, you know, I'm, I'm not shocked at some of the polarizing response to where this show is going in terms of its horror elements. I am surprised how explicit, it is being about them. It is not a show that is tiptoeing about potentially explicitly supernatural between, you know, oranges being thrown between characters speaking in very uh, spooky ways. Uh, At this point, I would be shocked if this show wasn't explicitly supernatural. I might go as far to say disappointed if it wasn't explicitly supernatural, because I don't know, how you t- turn around and explain this in a grounded and scientific way. And, uh, but yeah, I'm, I, li- I continue to really like the world, the characters, uh, obviously as a horror buff, I'm here for the show, taking the the door that wasn't opened in true detective season one and, and seeing it was in inside the other one. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm still very invested, very interested and in, and in all the characters are, are kind of working for me and all the setups that were, they were leaving for the the episodes to come. Yeah. Let's talk about uh, a few things that actually happened in the episode and specifically this supernatural idea. Um, I'm going to say the show is leaving itself a bunch of outs when it comes to supernatural stuff. Like I, I had the same reaction as you did, which is, Oh wow. The show is really explicitly supernatural now, right? Like, um, specifically, I think the character of Lund is the one that's in the hospital. Yeah. And there's this incredible sequence where he sits up and starts, you know, talking to Navarro and talking about her mom and all this stuff. It's like stuff that only Navarro would know. And, you know, 
and then kind of passes out again. Like, what's going on there? Um, Navarro also has a bunch of visions this episode. By the way, this is an episode of Decoding TV where we're talking about uh, women who wish they could be another person or somewhere else because like both Nicole Kidman and Navarro basically give the same speech of you ever wish you could be someone else you ever wish you didn't have to be here anymore uh, I thought that was an interesting coincidence and Navarro but, is is exp- more or less ex- uh, suffering from a concussion most likely so I you know I think that is the out that the show is giving itself in terms of is she reliable in there like the sequences that are explicitly supernatural exactly. there are no outside observers for what occurs. And so and, the and show it's, is... it's mostly Navarro, as far as I can tell, uh, you know, yeah. other than like Fiona Shaw from like, you know, other than, uh, who's Travis just like, Cole, I walk right? with ghosts. You know? right. <laughs> like, I... <laughs> right. uh, so you're, um, you're right. So, so we also know, uh, that, uh, the town like is being poisoned to some degree. Really, mm-hmm. as with all things, it all comes down to the evils of capitalism, Patrick mm-hmm, Lepic. Mm-hmm. Um, the mine is helping to employ half the town, according to uh, Danvers's character, but also like potentially poisoning them. There's a character who has like a stillborn child this episode, uh, presumably because of poisoning from the mine. And so it's like, oh, the mine is actually potentially poisoning people, polluting people. Maybe like that's what's causing... Uh, people's aggression, maybe that's what's causing people's hallucinations. So I think there's a lot of plausible deniability when it comes to the supernatural stuff. Because like the uh, you know, True Detective season one hinted at super it had people believing supernatural things, but there was nothing explicitly supernatural in True Detective. This is way more heavy handed though. <laughs> right, absolutely. <laughs> like it's way it's I think you're right. I think is there a path the show can navigate that allows it to have its cake and eat it too, which is look like, wouldn't it be fun if we got to have something that was more like, right. explicitly a horror got to play into those tropes and like gets to be more outwardly scary, but ultimately has a convenient explanation for X, Y, and Z. I think mm-hmm. you're right. I think that's a, I think that might be a difficult like path to go down. I think that like potentially leads to, I mean, I guess the, the supernatural path is also like not, um, not an easy one as well. Uh, Cause there could be a lot of fuzziness uh, there. So if I had to guess, it probably is more akin to what you're I, I, gesturing at. I think it right. is more likely to but be. But you want, you want that supernatural. I, yeah. I want, I want that's, a that's fucking monster in episode yeah. six, David. Yeah. Like when she says, I found it. I want that to be some sort of hairy, ancient Cthulhu beast buried mm-hmm. in the ice. Do I think it's more likely that there's like systemic poisoning going on and <laughs> Navarro had a concussion? Yeah, yeah, probably that makes that probably makes more sense in 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 the in the world of the show. But look, a boy can dream. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, a couple of other things to point out that happened this episode. Uh, we learned that Hank, I think that's a John Hawks character, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, he had apparently not turned over critical information about the murder of that woman uh, who we meet earlier in the episode. We see that Navarro and her had like a, you know, a a very meaningful confrontation where she was like delivering this child. Oh, I thought that was an incredible sequence. That was an incredible sequence. Great opener. Yeah. Um, where like, we understand why Navarro might've gotten so invested in this woman's life. Uh, and then, uh, Hank says, uh, Hank was not only like hiding the evidence from that, but like didn't acknowledge a critical piece of information that could have helped to crack the whole thing wide open. 
Uh, and Navarro gets really pissed at that. And then they have this big confrontation at the ice rink where, you know, Hank says, accuses Danvers like, Hey, you're playing, you're playing Mrs. Robinson to my kid, you know? And, uh, imply, <laughs> and then there's been articles, Patrick Klepek, uh, I, I sent you one published of like, what, what does that Mr. Robin, <laughs> what's that Mrs. Robinson reference mean? In True Detective Season 4, Episode 3. Yeah. And uh, right around the time when that article was published, I, David Chen, started like desiccating and withering away and just blowing into the wind. I don't know if you noticed that happen. Uh, um, no, I mean, I, I get it. I mean, especially in, uh, uh, you know, the, the media cycle that we're in these days where you're, look, what are people possibly going to Google I get where we end up with that article, but you're right that it does between us talking about John Stewart, like post nine 11. And then <laughs> what is a Miss Robinson reference? Like, wow, we're really, we're just understanding reckoning with our mortality here, David. Indeed. For, for those who don't know, I, I guess it is pretty old now, Patrick Lepic, but it is a reference to the 1967 film, the graduate, uh, which is, at this point, almost 60 years old. Yeah, so I feel like once we're 60, you can understand why someone might not <laughs> understand the reference. But wow, that's painful to contemplate. Anyway. Um, that co- The way she throws the coffee in his face was tremendous. Yeah, I rewound yeah. that a couple of times. Wow. <laughs> like, yeah. it, was, it, just, it was very satisfying. Well, his reaction, too, he doesn't like react in anger. He just kind of sits there and takes it, you know? Yeah. So... Uh, Couple of other things to point out. First of all, I found it interesting that Max, the one to watch for HBO, can't even win the streaming war on its own TV show. Um, You know, and good, good on them. Good on them. That's more. That's more believable that uh, Navarro (laughs) would say, "I watch Netflix." You know, when I'm alone by myself, how weird would it be if Navarro was like, "I watch Max, (laughs) the one to watch for HBO," (laughs) a a statement that no one in the history of the planet has ever said. Um, well, because you, you also know Netflix wouldn't allow the opposite to occur, right? Like, I can't, I can't, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, the heavy hand right, of Netflix, I right. think, would become a studio note. I, I do no think it say, is. I watch my favorite streaming network is Max. I think that's existed <laughs> yeah, for like 12 months. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> anyway. There is this uh, subplot with his hairdresser who, like, was involved with this guy who they end up tracking down, but then the mm-hmm. guy didn't even know about the people dying. So that, I think that was just like a dead end, right? Like that, that's just not going to lead anywhere uh, from my understanding. I don't know. I mean, the way he responds to the deaths makes mm-hmm. me think, not that he knows something, but the surprise at which, oh, like everyone could have died out there. Um, I don't know. And especially cause like the kind of encampment that she comes to is such a unique yeah. set up um yeah. like it's always kind of interesting every time we go to a new part of this world because it obviously makes sense there almost be like different kind of social setups like of how you would fit in in this very distinct part um of the environment um and like the one that they have is like so wholly unique than like the more traditional kind of town setup that we see danvers and, and navarro and so i don't know um i'm not sure if it's explicitly a dead end but i i suppose i would be, be shocked either i also thought it was um you know, obviously Danvers is this very cold, uh, mean, um, some might call a bitch, I guess all the characters seem to think about her. And yet, like the show is very careful every time a child is present, Mm, she softens immediately. And it's not an act. 
It is yeah. like she is good with kids. She like the sequence she has where she's is able to convince the the hairdresser's child to um to come yeah. over and and have some mac and cheese. She's got a story about this unicorn. Like she's very gentle and the she is so mean everywhere else that I don't think it's an act. I think we're we're seeing a different version of herself that is hidden underneath all of this other stuff. And she's so unbelievably mean to her own child. Like, yeah. the, like the way that like she forces her to take off the, the makeup, like on, on her face. Um, I, 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 I have to assume we're going somewhere with that because the show has done it a couple of two or three times now with the presence of a small child, she turns into putty uh, almost immediately. Yeah. Uh, I think the show is uh, in large part about the relationship between mothers and daughters, right? Yeah. And um, and how pain and trauma is or is not passed on, uh, about how heritage is or is not passed on. There's a scene where Navarro says she regrets that her mother didn't tell her her uh, Inupiaq name. And meanwhile, we have Danvers, who is like trying to rub this you know, tattoo off yeah. her daughter's face. Um, I saw a, a really good explanation of that, of how like Danvers is forced to look at uh, dead indigenous women a lot in the course of her job. And like it, it consumes a lot of her life. And so maybe like the resemblance of her daughter to that is um, too much for her to take. And that was, my, that like, was my interpretation yeah. of this. Right. Like, do you see what the fuck is going on here? Like, do you right. see how many, not, of not the people... right way to handle it. Like, no, not the right way for Danvers no, to handle no, it. No, um, no, no, but it's no. like, but at least it's like, it's not just Danvers is an asshole. Like there, it's not just Danvers is an asshole. She is an asshole, but there's like some pain motivating, some pain and protection. But she can't explain that. it. Like right. it'd be, she yeah. can't meet her she child. Can't communicate. On her you're level. supposed to, you're supposed to be able to communicate some of that instead of just like acting out, which is what Danvers does. Right. But I agree. It's nice to see that she's a complicated figure and there's like many sides to her. So, uh, anything else about the, the episode, I guess, um, we learned that the, uh, the people who in the corpsicle likely mm-hmm. didn't die from freezing to death. So that's like a new thing. That's a new thing that they, they're probably killed before and then froze. And then, yeah, the guy who survived Lund wakes up and uh, says like, we woke her. She's out there. So like, what, what is he talking about? We'll find out. Well, there's also, um, the, there's also the cell phone footage. Yeah, the that cell they phone recovers, the like, but waking found... up her and, yeah. Yeah, you know, Annie like, wake. so all the, there is some her that was awakened and you know what, Patrick Klepek, uh the opening scene of the show of all the wildlife like fleeing mm-hmm. and stuff, it, it does imply that I think there is going to be like a more explicitly supernatural element to this show. So we'll see. I, I think you might get your wish yet. So <laughs> I, um, I did really one of my favorite uh, exchanges in the entire episode was um, when uh, the the younger cop employs his uh, veterinary friend to, to come out and he's the one that sort of speculates that, you know, they were actually, uh, you know, they might've died of, of fear. Um, but like, <laughs> like they don't have actual forensics to come and do like an analysis. And yeah. there's, a, there's a bit where, where uh, Danvers goes like, and like, you definitely shouldn't do like, we de- like we probably shouldn't do like a quick, like, like, aut- like, I mean, we de- probably, it'd be like really legal. Like, and then right. like, and right. in a lot of shows, that's when the guy would be like, well, I guess I could do that real quick. Right. And instead, like the young cop was like, no, like get out of here. Do not, do not do that. Yeah. Um, she, she's like, yeah, you, you, you definitely can't do a postmortem. That would be illegal. <laughs> definitely don't do that. Right. I'm just, <sighs> I'm just, I just wanted to see what your reaction, you know, like, you know, 
Uh, that's what I think. I mean, if you think it's okay, then may you know we can continue that conversation. You know, every time I confess <laughs> to a new crime from my past, I'm just yeah. trying to see if David would think that would that right. be interesting to do now. Like, what? Do yeah, you, how yeah, do you, yeah, how yeah. you feel about it, David? You know, yeah, you want to defraud Costco again? How we how we feeling? So the the people, the guy Lund says, you know, we woke her. She's out there. A- Annie at the end says, I found it. Right. So like there's some force, some creature, something out there uh, that is potentially animating all these these people and, and threatening them. So I, I anticipate we I hope we'll have some kind of answers around that before the season is over. Anything else to mention? Oh, uh, the guy. I don't think they ever found the guy that they were looking for. Right. Um, Clark. Right. They went out and like looked for him. They never found that guy, but he would be. It does make sense that he would be the main suspect, given mm-hmm. that ev- all of his friends are dead and he's MIA, right? So I understand why they would they would try to look for him. But yeah, Hank assembles this like ragtag group of people and and is unable to find him yet. We'll see what happens in the next episode. Any other thoughts, Patrick Klepek? No, I'm. I am again. I think this. I'm invested in the in the story and the characters, but. And maybe this will end up being to 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 the to the to the show's uh, fault. Is I'm now deeply invested in finding out w- whether it's tricking me or not. Like what mm-hmm. what is what is going on here with the supernatural yeah. stuff? And so, you know, I've certainly seen some of the commentary around the show as people being maybe a little distracted by that. And I think the show is being intentionally distracting about that. And I think it'll be a fine line for it to walk to make that feel satisfying, whatever path it chooses to do. And so. That is one of those kind of like higher level storytelling decisions that I am really interested to see where the show lands because it has to make some hard choices one way or the other because of how it's presented itself to this point. Indeed. Well, those are our thoughts on True Detective Night Country Part 3. We'll have more coverage next week right here on Decoding TV. And that's going to bring us into this episode. Patrick Klepek, until next time, you want to let people know they can find more of your work on the internet. Yeah, you can uh, hear me talking about video games over at remapradio.com and anywhere where you listen to podcasts and my newsletter, Crossplay, about parenting and gaming is at crossplay.news. And of course, you can find us at podcast.decodingtv.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Find us across all platforms at Decoding TV and email us. Let us know what you think of the podcast and of the stuff we're covering at decodingtv at gmail.com. Again, next week, the homework is... True Detective Episode 4, and also Mr. and Mrs. Smith, the first few episodes of which will drop this week. See you later for all that right here on Decoding TV. Goodbye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.